We're going to be continuing in the book of uh, chapter 11, John 11, this morning, and reading from verses 45 to 57. And this follows the events in which Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And as Pastor Mike preached on these verses last week, we saw that interplay between Mary and Martha and Jesus and how that all transpired as he arrived several days after Lazarus' death to show God's glory in all of these things. And these are the events that take place following that. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed by his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. Let us be in prayer. Lord, we begin to get that sense that things are changing, that Jesus is definitely in peril at this time, that all of the actions, the healings, the miracles that he has performed are starting to come to a head. And we see that corner being turned that happened at Passover in which he went from the very high of being proclaimed king of the Jews to utter destruction. So, Lord, we just pray during these these next few chapters and verses. We we know in our hearts what's coming. But let's dwell on and, and learn from today's passage as Pastor Keith comes and teaches to us and delivers the words that that you have given him to share today. We are thankful for his boldness and his words and his spirit that loves you so much. And so we thank you for that, and we will hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is an incredibly important moment in in the Gospel of John. You'd think by now that... These religious guys, the Pharisees, the, San, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, that's, these are, that's like the top dog bunch of church guys right there. You'd think that they would understand that something's going on because 
Just like Jesus had healed the, remember he healed the man who had been born blind? And they all saw it and they all freaked out and got angry with him. You'd think somebody would have said, okay, maybe there's something going on here with this Jesus guy. But then after he brings Lazarus back from the dead, you would have thought that that would have been the moment everyone would have said, okay, hold on. We get that he's not exactly what we expected out of the Messiah, but, I mean, he just brought a dead guy out of a, out of a grave who'd been in there for four days. Maybe we should listen to him. You, you'd think maybe someone would have had that thought, but the fact is, the more Jesus does to prove who he is, the more they hate him for it. Think about that. The more he does to prove that who he is is true, the more they hate him for it. So they ask this question, what are we accomplishing? That's the question they ask when they get there. What are we accomplishing? And then it's, it's, it's a great question to ask, but, but recognize that this man Caiaphas, who's the high priest, who would later be the high priest, he's the one who has this statement when he says, you guys don't know anything. It would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Now, he wasn't saying that as some sort of, you know, a testimony to what Jesus was going to do on the cross and, and the resurrection that God would bring to him and the, the atoning death on the cross for sins. He wasn't predicting that, but rather he was saying, we need to kill him. We need to kill him. We would be better off murdering Jesus than we would be if we let this thing continue to play out. Because if Jesus keeps getting stronger and stronger in his influence and in his ministry, we are going to lose everything. That's a great question to ask. What are we accomplishing? I look at that question that the Pharisees asked and the Sadducees asked and the Sanhedrin asked and I think about that and I can easily find myself in a position of asking the same question. What are we accomplishing with regards to our relationship with Jesus? Because, make no mistake, recognizing this, if you allow Jesus' work and his ministry to play out in your life in the direction that it's going, you could lose everything. You could lose everything. For the Pharisees, this was a reality. What they understood was that Jesus' ministry left to his own devices could cost them everything. And you want to know something? They were absolutely right about that. Because it did. It cost them everything. What these guys didn't know in about the year 38, 31 AD was that in just about 40 years, everything that they knew to be true, everything that they held fast to, would be completely destroyed as the Romans would invade Jerusalem in 70 AD and level the city and topple the temple and lay it waste to the ground and kill everyone they could find. Jesus, of course, knew that. That's why he prophesied to them. He said, there's not one stone here pointing at the temple that will not be standing upon another. That's why he prophesied to the people and he warned them. If you read Matthew 24, he said, when the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, you know, he says, run to the hills, flee to the mountains. When you see the sign of the Son of God coming in heavens, get ready because this is all going down. Many people think those verses are talking about the end of the world. They were talking about the end of the temple, Jerusalem. That's why he said to them, look, you guys pray that it doesn't happen during winter. 
And when it does, get out of the city. That's why all the Christians took off, by the way. Everything was about to be destroyed. They were going to lose everything. And you want to know the truth? It's the same for us today. It's the same for us today. We could lose everything too. But for the Pharisees, this was a classic example of using religion as a way to power. Because the Pharisees held a position of power over the people as their religious leaders. And Jesus came and he, of course, respected their teaching. He never said what they're saying isn't true. As a matter of fact, he said, listen to what they say, for they sit on the seat of Moses. But look at their lives and don't do what they do. He exposed their hypocrisy. For Jesus, it wasn't enough to have the right beliefs. You had to have the right heart, too. You had to have love for God and love for others. In other words, your life needs to reflect your religion. And for the Pharisees, it did not. They emphasized the rules so that they could condemn those who weren't like them or those who who couldn't live up to their standards. They lorded their power over the people while calling attention to themselves. But Jesus, however, along with his good buddy John the Baptist, exposed them, and they hated him for it. They hated him for it. Notice the Pharisees never asked the question, hey, is Jesus truly God? Is there any truth to who he is and what he's saying? Should we listen to him? Maybe we should change. I mean, after all, he brought a dead man out of the grave. He opens the eyes of the blind. I mean, these were the things that the regular people were saying. These were the things that the, that the, the lay people, the, the Jews, were, were, were understanding and going, wow, look what he's doing. We, we can believe in him. Many of them were, but it's interesting. The ones who held the power were willing to be blinded to the truth in order to maintain their positions of power. Interesting, isn't it? Things don't change a whole lot, do they? Think of what people will do and the truth they will sacrifice in order to maintain power. It happens all the time in our society, doesn't it? You can show people straight to their face that what they profess and what they hold on to is wrong, but they would rather hold on to that than lose power. We see it everywhere in our culture. So what they decided was that it was more important to protect their kingdom and power even if it meant denying the truth of the religion they were supposed to be teaching. You see, murdering Jesus is against their religion. But that became preferable than letting things play out. The risk for the Pharisees was too great. Jesus was becoming too influential and he had to be stopped. So recognize this. For us, we could ask the same question. What are we accomplishing with regard to our lives, our relationship with Jesus, because it's true. Allowing Jesus' ministry to play out in your life could cost you everything. Did you know that? It could cost you everything. There's many stories that people tell about how their lives were disasters and they were addicted to this and they were violent and they were depressed and, and, and things were horrible and horrible and horrible and, and their life was spinning out of control and their family was being destroyed. And then they found Jesus and it all got put back together. I love stories like that, don't you? 
Many of us have stories like that to one degree or another. I know many people who have that, that God story, and it's awesome. But you want to know something? I know plenty of people also who have a story that looks like this. You know, my life was pretty much going the way I had always planned for it to go. I had a good job, a good career, was making good money. I had the, the, the picture-perfect American dream life, but something inside me was missing. I don't know what it was, but then I came face-to-face with this Jesus. And he invited me to, his, to become his disciples, and I said yes, and everything changed. And I lost it all. You ever hear that story? When we were uh, on the beach in Haiti, we met this young couple and their little girls. Remember these guys? I can't remember their names, but it was clear to us that they weren't from Haiti just by looking at them. And this young couple and their little kids were, were playing on the beach and someone struck up a conversation with them, which led to them coming and talking to us. And, and here's what they shared. This was a young couple, they were from St. Louis. And here's what they shared with us. We had good jobs in St. Louis, but we sold it all to come down here. And then they pointed across this little, they pointed across the bay to this island. I don't even know what the name of the island is, but you know, Haiti's an island, but then there's a smaller island that's still part of Haiti. And if you think Haiti is bad, this little island has even less than Haiti does. And he goes, that's where we're going in eight days. Now, you're not talking about, you know, a, a retired couple that sent their kids off and they're well off and they can handle it. And you're talking about, you're talking about a young family here with little kids. They sold everything and they're going across the bay to this island. And we said, well, what are you going to do? Where are you going to live? They said, well, there's this village that we've been in contact with, but we don't have any housing over there. We don't have anything going on. We're just going to take a boat and show up and we trust that Jesus will show us what to do and where to go. And that everything that we have, if we seek his word first, everything that we need will be given to us, right? Now that's a testimony about Jesus changing everything, isn't it? That's a testimony about having it all, and then according to this world, losing it all to follow Jesus. I tell you, we all sat back, we were like, wow. And I don't know about the rest of the team, but I was, I was looking at my own life going, do I have the guts to do that? You know, would I do that? I mean, it's dangerous over there. They don't have health care. They don't have vaccinations. They don't have clean water everywhere you look. They don't have a lot of the things that we think we have to have to live. But they didn't care because they had Jesus. Sometimes, if you follow Jesus, it can cost you everything. And many religious people, okay? Many religious people including us oftentimes, would rather Jesus be killed than turn their lives over to him. We would rather not have to deal with it than give him everything. So let's ask the questions today here. What would be taken away from you if you truly followed him? And I don't mean just kind of like, you know, yeah, raise your hand if you love Jesus. Yeah, okay. I mean like if you said, I'm going to lose everything for the sake of the gospel and truly follow him, whatever that means in my life. And, and just, uh, just an aside, I can't tell you what that means for you. That's between you and Jesus. But some of the things that you might lose are things that you have to be real about. The first thing, what would be taken away from you? Maybe it'd be power. 
Maybe it'd be power. Power might be taken away from you. You know, we all, like the Pharisees, sit in these positions of, of power, don't we? You can change the slide for me, please. And, 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 and we, we have these positions of power over people in our lives, right? But the Bible says that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, you can't submit to someone and hold power over them at the same time. Did you know that? That's tough to do, though. A lot of us hold on to our power. We have power in our families. We have power in relationships. We have power in our places of work. We have power in friendships. And sometimes to follow Jesus means that you have to lay that power down. Now, the Pharisees loved that power. That's why they kept it. That's why they were willing to sacrifice Jesus. They weren't willing to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. They were willing that everyone submit to them out of reverence for them. But that's not the gospel. Notice that Jesus, in his word, says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is where we lose it here. Because people I know, people that I talk to and in my own life, I realize this too sometimes. I don't want to submit to people unless I feel like they deserve it. Right? Are you like me? A lot of times I talk to people and they're fighting with each other. It's like, well, well, I'll be nice to them when they're nice to me first. Right? I'm not going to be submissive to that person. They don't deserve it. If they would do that for me, then maybe I would reciprocate and do that for them. Is that what Jesus said? Do unto others as they do unto you? Is that the golden rule? Of course not. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not as they do unto you. See, if we're waiting for that, we'll never get there. If I'm waiting to, to, for someone to deserve it for me to submit to them that I don't want to submit to, I'll always find a way out of that. Come on, you know it. But Jesus says it's not about whether they deserve it or not. It's about whether I deserve it, Jesus says. And guess what? He does. That's why he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, not out of reverence for the other person or because they deserve it. See, to follow Jesus means you've got to let go of some of that power. It means you have to not lord it over others the way the Pharisees did that you're in power over. It means you've got to be a servant. Bottom line. So for you to truly follow Jesus might mean that you let go of some of that power that you hold in your life. How do you do that? See, many of us, we use our power in different, different ways, don't we? Some of us exude power by always being present, controlling. Some of us exude power by withdrawing and pulling away until the other person begs and pleads for us to come back, right? How do you do that? What do you do in your life and relationships when you're trying to exude power? Do you, do you blow yourself up and, and, and become large? Or do you shrink yourself back and become small? Either way, it's still a power play, isn't it? To follow Jesus means that that could be taken away from you. You know what else might be taken away from you? What you might lose is, is relationship. You might lose relationship. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? See, for some of us, the thing that would be taken away from us if we truly followed Jesus would be some of the relationships we find ourselves in. Because let's be real, some of the relationships we may find ourselves in are not very God-honoring. They're not bringing us into holiness, into righteousness. Some of them are taking us away. This is a talk that we have with the students a lot. 
Because a lot, a lot of teenagers think that even as a Christian, they can jump into the, the, the world of the party lifestyle with all their friends and that they won't be tainted by that, right? Oh, I, I, can, I can go to all those parties where people are doing all those horrible things and just, you know, I can be a light to the darkness, right? You know, that, that can happen here and there, but what I see more from where I stand is more of a person getting taken down by the darkness. That happens a lot more, but you know what? That ain't just a teenager thing, is it? That's an adult thing too, isn't it? I mean, some of us, let's be real, and I'm not, I'm not saying that you need to ditch all your non-Christian friends because, of course, you're to be a light to them, but what I'm saying is this. If your relationships are the most important thing in your life, more important than Jesus, then you are going to be struggling with discipleship because there will be times in your life when Jesus is going to get right in the middle of your relationship. And is your relationship causing you to do things that are unholy and sinful, taking you away from Christ? The Bible says don't be yoked together like that. Don't be yoked together like that. But for some of us, that's like, that's our idol. You know, I want people to like me. I want my friends to accept me. I want my coworkers to think I'm awesome. I want people to think I'm funny or cool or, or, or whatever. So I act this way when I'm at church, and then I act this way when I go to work or when I go to school because I can't have those people, you know, think badly of me. What would they think of you if you stood up for Christ? And does it matter? Does it matter? See, sometimes it won't be you severing relationships. It'll be them severing relationships with you. All you have to do is stand in truth and see who's left. You know, if you can stand in truth with someone and, and, and they still love and accept you even though they don't think like you, that's a true friend right there. But you know, our world isn't like that, is it? Our world is like this. You either agree and affirm and celebrate everything I think and do and believe or I hate you. That's our world now, you know? It's amazing how you see these things happening. But, but you know what? Jesus says submit to one another, but also don't be yoked together with non-believers, what else might it cost you? Let's, let's move on here. Number three, number C, possessions. You might lose possessions if you follow Jesus. That guy that we saw in, in, in Haiti, he, they sold everything. He wasn't like, okay, we're bringing in the, the barge to bring over my, my man cave stuff over there. Hey, we're bringing in the, the extra you know, trailer to haul all the kids' toys and their bikes over to the island. No, there was none of that. They had whatever they could carry on that little ship going over to, going over to the deal. For some of us, this is our, this is our idol, man, our stuff, right? We, we, we have a, all these things that we've worked so hard for, and, and, and this is what defines us. And to follow Jesus and to, to, to live a generous life may mean laying down some of that stuff. But look at what Jesus says. He says this, No man can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. Now this next one's going to throw some of us, okay? What else might it cost us to follow Jesus? It might cost us our religion. Our religion. You say, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense, Pastor Keith. Isn't Jesus and religion the same thing? I would say this. It could be, but it probably isn't. It could be, but it probably isn't. Many examples of people, including the Pharisees that we saw this morning, who put their religion above Jesus. Now, think about that for a second. How do we do that? What are some ways that that happens? Okay? I want to read this text to you from, from the book of James. 
And then you'll see what I mean, I think, a little bit. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, religion is about the stuff that you do to try to like be like God. Now, I know that might sound good, but here's the, here's the, the dirty truth. You can't ever win at that, Okay? The word religion comes from the word relingari, which literally means to relink. So religion is about man's attempt, humanity's attempt, to relink with a holy and righteous God. That's why religions all across society from the time of the first humans walking on this planet have all had some form of religion. Because there's this built-in desire that we have to relink with God. So we do these good deeds, we build these buildings, we sacrifice, we do all this stuff. But here's where the gospel is different from that. The gospel says that sinful human beings can never relink with a holy God unless God relinks with them first. See, the gospel is that Jesus came and relinked with us through his death and resurrection. And when that happens, now we're not concerned with power for ourselves. We're concerned with taking care of those who have no power and in, and in the culture of, of the time of James, there were, there were no more powerless persons than widows and orphans. They had nothing and no one to take care of them. So James says, look, if you really want to demonstrate that you understand religion and that you've been relinked with a holy God, then you'll empty yourself of all worldly power and you'll take care of those who can do nothing for you and have no other way to do it. And that's exactly what the church did. That's exactly what the church did. But you see, here's the problem for us. Sometimes religion can be more important than Jesus. Our relinking, our desire to remain attached to our culture can cost us everything. I saw an article this week about Bishop Eva Brun of the Lutheran Church of Sweden. Okay? You want to know what she proposed to the Lutheran Church of Sweden? That they remove all crosses and religious symbols from all of their churches so they won't offend anyone of a different religion who's coming into their country. Get rid of all the crosses. Get rid of anything that references Jesus because we don't want to offend those who are coming into our country, you see? Now, understand this. I'm not talking about like a Capitol building or a a government facility in Sweden or something like that. I'm talking about the church, okay? This is the church, or something that calls itself the church. That's saying we are more concerned with being accepted by the culture around us and not offending anyone than we are simply standing on who we are as the church. 
which is Jesus Christ. We'd rather sacrifice that so that they don't hate us. That's what I'm talking about, you guys. You say, well, what religion is that? I'll tell you, I heard a talk by a church historian last week at a meeting I went to, and he said, you know, the prevalent religion of our culture today is polytheism, the belief in more than one God. The belief that all gods are equal. The belief that that all paths lead to the same place and that all religious ideas are of equal truth and of equal value. This is what has become our church culture. And we would rather sacrifice the truth of the gospel to keep our religion, our polytheistic religion, so that the culture will accept us. Guess what? That's a power play. Because we fear what happens When we as a religion lose our power in the culture. But what we have to realize is that our power in the culture does not come from its acceptance of us. Our power comes from light shining in darkness. Completely different, isn't it? This is the sin of our generation. We become just like the Pharisees. More concerned with, with, don't, don't hate me. Don't hate what I'm going to say. Don't hate what I believe. Please, I'll change. I'll change my opinion of this. I'll change what I think about that. I'll show you that I'm just like you. I'll show you that, that I'm awesome, that I'm nice, that I'm tolerant, that I'm whatever you want to say about me. I'm just like you. Just please don't hate me. That's really what the church sounds like today in America. Just don't hate me, whatever you do. Don't call me bad names so that we can have power. What would it cost you if you laid that kind of power down in your life? If you stopped caring what everybody thought, right? And cared about the truth. So let me ask you this question. I could preach for about two hours on this. What would you gain? What would you gain if you followed Jesus? Talk about what you would lose. What would you gain? Jesus talks about counting the cost a lot. But I'm going to say this. Count it both ways. Count it both ways. There's these scriptures... From, from Luke's gospel that Jesus is talking to the crowds and he's saying to them that, that you know, you have to follow, but you have to count the cost. And he, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yet even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross cannot be my disciple. Now, let me just stop here for a second. Some of people freak out. They go, wait a minute, Jesus wants me to hate my family? Not in the way that you're afraid that he does right now. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to show you that the primary relationship in your life is you and Jesus. That that relationship may even come in conflict with even those relationships that are closest to you in this life. And if you're really going to let the ministry of Jesus play out in your life, even those relationships might become strained. He says, suppose, if you, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not willing to finish it, everyone who sees you will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Matthew 16, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, check this out, 
will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus says, look, you have to give all this up. But guess what you'll find if you do? You'll find life in a way that you've never even imagined before. Peter speaks up and says to them, Lord, we have left all we have to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age or in the age to come. That's what he told Peter. He said, look, there's all this stuff you have to give up, but guess what? You get so much more. You think those guys going to that island in Haiti are, are sitting there right now going, oh man, I wish I had my PlayStation 4. You think they're sitting there going, you know, I wish I had my, my, my nice leather sofa to sit on and watch the game today. You think they're doing that? Not that there's anything wrong with either of those things, but I promise you, their life is filled with different ideas about what's important and what's going to happen on a Sunday afternoon, you see. Their life is, is much more centered on their faith in Christ. And there's a reward there. Peter would write these words later to the church. He'd say, blessed be to the Father, the God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What God has for you doesn't rust and, dest- and become destroyed. It doesn't lose its value when the market crashes. It doesn't get tired of you. It doesn't grow old. Now make no mistake about it. The Pharisees were right to be afraid of Jesus. This is because Jesus does not leave room for you to keep your life the way it is while following him. So what are we accomplishing? You know what? This was the really, really the wrong question to be asking. The question should be, what is Jesus accomplishing? That's a question I want you to think about right now. What is Jesus accomplishing in your life? What's he calling you to? The Pharisees missed all the wonderful works and miracles about Jesus and what he did because they were too focused on themselves and holding on to their control. Hey, let's not make the same mistake. Let's not miss anything that Jesus has for us. Let's experience all of it. Let's stop focusing on our lives and let go of that so we can grab on to him and watch what he does. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your words. And God, they cut us to the heart. And Lord, I know many, including myself, Lord, we feel convicted by the fact that, God, much of what we do is still focused on holding on to some control or power. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and ask, God, that you would just wreck us of that and that we might come face to face with what it truly means to follow you. And that like Peter and John the Baptist and the disciples and Mary and others, Lord, that we might step into it knowing that even though it seems crazy, Lord, you have an inheritance for us that beats all of that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a look at this video.
One of the things that I love about Marian Methodist the most is that for me it's been such a cornerstone of my faith. I've been a member here for 20 years and so I've progressed from that summer games youth to now a mother of two daughters growing up in the youth of the church. So um, it's, it's just been a, a staple for me in my faith and my relationship with God. We give our gifts to the church because we're very excited about the direction that the church is going. Um, again, the church has just been such a, a foundation for me and my faith, and we want that same opportunity for our own children and for our family. So we give to the church to support the mission and the vision and the growth of the church as it's moving forward. My name is Amy Stevens, and these are the reasons that we give to First United Methodist Church. Will you please join us in worshiping this way? Will the ushers please come forward?